My name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And uh, as I tell you who I am, I want to go ahead and dismiss uh, Hubtown kids. And so if you are ages three to five, now's a good time for you, you to, to head to my right, your left, and head up to Hubtown kids. This morning, parents and, and church members, this is what we're going to be uh, having the children learn about this morning, this idea that God is infinite. I want you to think about that, parents, everybody. And it's, this is their sermon, but I get to preach too this morning. God is infinite. What does it mean that God is infinite? It means that God is unlimited in knowledge. He is unlimited in power. And he is unlimited in presence. He's unlimited in knowledge. He is unlimited in power. And he is unlimited in presence. We're going to think about that and apply that uh, truth, this idea that God is infinite. We're going to lay it over our text a little bit this morning. So think about that from time to time. What does it mean that God is infinite? What does it mean that Jesus Christ even is infinite? Um, but without any further ado, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn there to Mark chapter 11. We're going to pick up where uh, my dear brother Chris, uh, Pastor Chris, left off last week at the beginning of Mark chapter 11. So we'll look at verses 1 through 11. I want to share this with you just as a way of an update or a, just a recap. Know this, that Mark in his gospel, he is reaching a climax. And whether you realize this or not, at this point in chapter 11, it is hitting fever pitch. Uh, if there was a soundtrack that was attached to this reading, just imagine that every time you open the Bible that like a soundtrack would play. Uh, what would the soundtrack, what would the, what would the music that would be playing at this point in time in this passage, would it be slow and, and steady and poetic and classical in nature? No. Would it be uh, heavy and, and moving quickly? Yes. This is an exciting time. It's, there's mounting anticipation, and so I'm glad it doesn't do that in a way because it might be distracting, especially if some of you were on different pages of your, of your Bible this morning. But let's all be there this morning, Mark chapter 11, and let's imagine this, this moving forward, this progression, this mounting anticipation that is occurring here in Mark's gospel as we open up chapter 11. I want to say this too, that this is the day that Christians, here in this text that we're going to be reading about today, it's the day that Christians typically uh, call Palm Sunday. Uh, that day is not today. However, uh, what I will share with you this morning, I believe is going to cause Palm Sunday 2022 to be even more epic, even more meaningful uh, as well as, as it even uh, paves the way for Easter Sunday 2022. And so I know we've got a little bit of time, uh, but if you can, take some notes, store these things away, because I, I, I know it for a fact that Mark will be more meaningful as a result of today's sermon, and furthermore, uh, Palm Sunday 2022 and Easter Sunday 2022 will be as well. One more thing before we get in. Let me say this. The triumphal entry that we'll look at today, or Palm Sunday, it, it, it really it, it establishes that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning the Son of David coming in salvation and sitting on his eternal throne. Amen. Think about that. There's a meaning to the text today. It's not just something that happened, oh yeah, this would be good to remember because it happened and we're not really sure what is meant by all this, but let's not do that anymore. The triumphal entry of Jesus, it further establishes that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the son of David in coming salvation and in him sitting on his eternal throne. And I wasn't going to share this at the beginning, but if I were to sum up 
these 11 verses into just a few words, this is what I would say. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. And so Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, and Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, there is no power in this man. There's no power in my notes or manuscript. There is power in your word. So we look to that now, praying that your church would be helped and that you'd be glorified. We ask that these things be done in your name, Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but there are some odd marriage ceremonies in this world. There are some very odd ceremonies in this world. Many of you may realize this, but uh, the, today we celebrate Independence Day. We celebrate the United States of America in some ways, but uh, not so much here because this room, not just in theory, but even in practice, in reality, is comprised of many nations. And some of those nations this morning I might even be speaking about. Did you know in China, uh, some husbands will, will, will shoot several arrows at their bride. They'll take the tips off, right? They'll, they'll take the, the, uh, the arrowheads off. But they'll shoot their, at their bride several times. And then they'll put the bow down and they'll walk up and gather those arrows and they'll break them. And there's some meaning to that. And it's lost on me. And uh, I don't know that Sarah would have married me had I uh, attempted to do something like that. There's not a whole lot of Chinese in my uh, DNA, but, but that would have been a cool, cool story either way. From what I understand, some Germanic cultures will actually recite their vows while standing in their own graves. It's kind of unique. And that's just a few of many. Some of you that, are, uh, that have traveled the world or maybe you were even raised in other parts of this world, maybe you could even add to that list and it would be exciting for us this morning. But if you're like me though, there's so little of this passage that we've read just now that actually translates into my understanding, into this modern culture. From a strict 21st century perspective, I, I would say we don't even really know, like, what's normal procedure for this type of thing? Is that like everybody gets treated that way? Like everybody gets to ride on a colt? Like that's how you enter into Jerusalem if you haven't been there in some time? 
Uh, does every rabbi get, get treated that way? What does Hosanna even mean? Uh, for many of us, we look at this passage and it doesn't shock us because we've heard it before. We've read it many times. And yet at the same time, we don't really understand what's happening. Well, the, the aim of the sermon this morning of, of my time with you is that we would understand this text, even as 21st century uh, Americans here gathered today. I want you to do uh, something for me this morning. I want you to, 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 to pretend uh, so some of you, um, there's a lot of beards in this room, there's, there's a lot of gray in here, so you might think, right, what does that even mean to pretend? What does that mean to use your imagination? Well, work with me this morning. I want you to, to think about, imagine that you are, you're a young child, either a boy or a girl, and you uh, are from a culture that is foreign to the Jewish culture of the first century, uh, but at the same time, you're visiting Uncle John and Aunt Mary, the stereotypical Jews that are living there in this, uh, in this city at this particular day and time. I imagine, maybe you imagine, right, because you're this person, if you were observing the events that took place in Mark chapter 11, that you would have a lot of questions. Maybe you remember being a child and, and pulling on the hem of, uh, or the, the jacket of Uncle John or Aunt Mary or the, the, the equivalent in your life, and you say, what does that mean? Why are they doing that? Why did he just shoot that, his wife with three arrows? Uh, what is, what is it, why are they standing in their graves and, and what does that even mean? Maybe if you're looking through this passage and you're pretending to be a child, maybe you'd ask some questions like this. What's with the colt? What's with the colt? What's with this donkey? What's with the, the cloaks? Why, why'd they take their coats off? Why'd they do what they did? And what's with these branches? We're going to take a few moments this morning and we're going to look at those questions or that question grouped together as we look at verses 2 through 8. Maybe you're asking, why is there such a crowd? Is, it seems as though Mark is painting this picture that, that Jerusalem is just overflowing with people and they're just having this huge celebration and cheering and, and there's people in front of Jesus and people behind Jesus and everybody's laying their cloaks out and coats and like basically paving this way, laying out the, the green carpet for Jesus, as it were? Why is there such a crowd? I'm going to work to answer that question for you this morning as well. Maybe you're asking, what does Hosanna even mean? And all these other things that they were shouting, what does that even mean? Because it's cool for us to say that and on Palm Sunday and, and uh, just the, and next year, maybe we'll wave some branches as well. Maybe we'll call out Hosanna, but what are we saying when we do so? Maybe you're asking, what does Jesus the Messiah, have to do with King David and the coming kingdom of King David. Isn't that a thing of the past? Look at that in verse 10. And then finally, we'll, we'll end asking or finally answering this question, why does Jesus go to the temple? Why does Jesus go to the temple? Let me recap a couple of these verses before we dive in. It says in verse 1, now they when they drew near to Jerusalem and Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. Really, what's happening here is Jesus, in his 
providence and his wisdom and his infinite knowledge is sending his disciples out and he's saying hey tell them to tell these guys that that have this cult tell them that the master that the lord has need of it but he's not really saying master i believe he's not just saying hey the rabbi the teacher uh the our lord i think he's actually saying the sovereign one the king of the jews requires that cult they go and they do just as jesus says and they come back with the cult remember what it means that God is infinite. Imagine if God wasn't infinite. Imagine if Jesus was not God. Imagine if Jesus was like, hey, there's probably going to be a cult. Probably. Right? So the disciples come back like two hours later, just like your oldest kids, and they're like, uh, we, uh, Jesus, you told us to find this thing, but we looked everywhere and couldn't find it. We don't even think it's there, right? Well, that's not what happened. That could have happened, but it's not what happened. Furthermore, they could have found the colt that Jesus knew about. They could have grabbed that colt and they could have gotten shot with three arrows on as they exited the city, right? But that's not what happened either. Jesus, in his providence and in his power, knew that this, uh, this, would, this action would be received. He saw where the colt was. He knew how it, would, how it would be received if his disciples took it. And he commanded that the, that, that colt even uh, be, be used for his purposes. And I think that Mark is demonstrating, even subtly, it's often accused that, that Mark doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or that, not that he's the Messiah, that he's not uh, God in the flesh. That's foolish. It's not true. Even here, Mark is demonstrating that for us. Jesus is God, right? And they go and they get this colt and they bring it to Jesus. Verse 7 says, they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, and Jesus sat on it. Throw their cloaks out on the road as well. They put their leafy branches on the road that they got from the field. We're asking this question, what's with the colt? What's with the cloaks? What's with the branches? Well, I want to work to answer that question for you this morning. You see, in ancient Israel, one of the privileges of the king was to be able to commandeer any beast of burden that he desired to take. Samuel even warned the Israelites about that. Maybe your mind goes back to that and you remember when uh, the people were like, hey, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. They all have kings. We want kings. And, and uh, God speaking through Samuel was like, hey, if you do that, you know what's going to happen, don't you? That king is going to take all your stuff. He's going to have the privilege and the right to do so. Uh, and so that's kind of what's happening. That's, kind of, that's typical uh, form and function for, for uh, kings of this day. And so Jesus, as king, he exercises the right. There's something else that is significant here. It's this idea that the colt had never been ridden on. It had never been ridden on. Donkeys and and horses alike, they really, they have to be broken into, or broken before they can become useful. They can't be ridden unless they've been broken. And and yet, at the same time, there's this principle, even in Jewish culture, that no one's really allowed to ride or ever sit on the steed or, the, or the, uh, the donkey that belonged to the king. So it's fitting. This, this donkey, this colt, had never been ridden before. It belongs to King Jesus. And so they say, hey, bring that, or Jesus says, bring that colt. The Lord has need of it. That's why the Lord Jesus specifically asked for this colt, having never been ridden on. It had been prepared. It was there for him. So that's why he's riding a colt. That's why he's riding this donkey. And by the way, you might be thinking, isn't that like, like if you, could, if you had the option between like camel and like stallion and donkey, why in the world, like, 
in our culture, we'd like, wouldn't it be cooler to ride a, like a really pretty horse, like one that could do like, like a three-trick uh, pony or like a, I don't, know, I don't know what I'm talking about. But wouldn't, isn't, that, isn't there like a better form of transportation? Well, not in this time. It's very common. Uh, and it's even believed that, that kings enter, are acting in, in, in times of peace would be riding on, uh, on, uh, on a donkey and not on a horse, but a horse was really reserved for uh, wartime, which in- incidentally, this is a fun fact, but Alexander the Great, when he entered into to Jerusalem, it's recorded by Josephus, the historian, that he was riding a, a, a horse, a steed. Uh, but, but at any rate, we've looked at the code a little bit, but we're still asking, well, what does the, what's the symbolism, what's the meaning of the, the, the cloaks, the coats, and also these branches? Well, that's also a part of this ancient Jewish practice for welcoming a king or for recognizing a king. You see, in 2 Kings, we read about the death of Ahab. Uh, Ahab was one of the most wicked kings that ever ruled in, uh, in Israel. But in 2 Kings, he dies, and one of his evil sons, actually all of them, but one of his evil sons particularly is, is killed. And the man who killed him was promised that if he did so, if he delivered uh, the, the people of God from this wicked, wicked son of this wicked, wicked king, that he would be anointed king. And that takes place. Not only does he kill this evil son of Ahab, but furthermore, he is anointed king. And in chapter number 9, verse 13, when the people find out that Jehu has been crowned king, that he's killed this wicked uh, uh, prince, the, the word of God says this, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare, uh, bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king and so every Jewish person uncle John particularly would know the meaning of these cloaks being laid out that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt that Jesus sitting on these cloaks that Jesus' donkey riding and walking along on these steps that are no longer bare, on, these, on this uh, path that is no longer bare, that all of these things were pointing to the fact that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Jesus is the King of the Jews. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, prophesying of this passage says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This passage, hundreds of years given before Jesus fulfills it. They're riding on this donkey. Recognized as king with Jerusalem shouting to him, celebrating the coming salvation. And so you ask this morning, what is the meaning of all of this? What's the meaning of the, of, the, of the donkey? What's the meaning of the cloaks? What's the meaning of the covering of the floor, of the pathway as it enters into Jerusalem? Well, it means this, that Jesus was being received as the conquering king. Jesus is being received. He's being recognized as the conquering king. Now, we're going to see in a few weeks that the people that are shouting, the people that have laid their cloaks out, even some of the disciples are woefully unprepared for actually what's happening. They, they're going to be revealed as being confused. And yet for us this morning, we see this. Mark is highlighting 
for us as he records this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this Jesus is the King of the Jews and that he is here bringing salvation as a conquering king. Verse number nine in our passage says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This verse here, it paints quite a picture. It's no small stir in the city of Jerusalem. There's a great throng before Jesus. There's a great throng after him as they are ushering him into Jerusalem. And so maybe you're asking the question, why is there such a crowd? Does this happen every day in Jerusalem? Is this, I mean, most of the time when we read in the New Testament, when we read about Jerusalem, it's one of the special feasts. It's one of the, one of the holidays. And so we get this idea that there's always a crowd, but this is the time of Passover. Particularly in the time of Passover, it's one of the more significant, if there can be, uh, if there, if there can be a hierarchy uh, of the feasts that the Jews would celebrate. Every Jew that is able, whether they live close by or even far away, that they are required to return to Jerusalem at this particular time and to partake in the feasts. So Josephus, uh, again, I referenced him a moment ago, a, a Jewish historian, he gives us this idea that there would be roughly around one million pilgrims in the city that week. Extra. So you've already got this humongous city sprawling out with towns and cities close by all around it but in addition to the packed city you've got an extra one million pilgrims roughly and so if you're coming to jerusalem from anywhere in the north say like capernaum or even nazareth there you'd have to come down through jericho up through bethphage up through uh, um, bethany and come through this road that jesus is walking on that jesus is riding on this colt on so picture the throngs of people. Think of, picture the, the million people just flooding in and flowing into the city all about this same time. This is the, the day that they need to be there. This is the day kind of when it all begins. I want to paint a little bit more of a picture as to what would be taking place. Not just Jesus riding on this donkey, not just these people shouting, but also singing the Psalms of Ascent. Singing the Psalms of, of Ascent. The book of Psalms in the, in the Christian Bible and in the, in the Jewish Bible as well is a, it's actually a, a set of books. It's a, it's a collection of books, actually of five. And one part of, of the Psalms, Psalms 120 to Psalms 134, are, are referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. And these are like the, the hymns, if you will. These are the carols that the Jews would sing as they would come back to Jerusalem during these, one of these feasts. These songs would catechize the people. They would teach the people the stories as they returned to Jerusalem year after year and several times a year. But in a sense, work the crowd into a, a bit of a frenzy, a holiday frenzy as they meditated on the, the truths and the promises that were associated with this Messiah and his coming kingdom. And so when you think about the Psalms of Ascent, I don't want to ruin it for you, but I want you to imagine them as almost like Christmas carols. When Christmas is coming by, uh, coming around, and some of us, we start earlier than others. But imagine, it's almost like Christmas carols, like they're preparing our hearts and getting us ready for the season. And that's kind of what these Psalms of Ascent are for. So you can know that as this throng of people, this great crowd of people follow and surround Jesus and walk in shouting Hosanna and blessed be the name of the Lord and and he who comes in the name of the Lord that they are singing these psalms. And in many ways they've been become excited because of that. 
Remember the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. What does it say? Rejoice greatly. Don't just rejoice, but rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why should they shout? Because their king is coming. Why should they shout? Because salvation is here. Why should they shout? Because all of the Psalms find their fulfillment and their rest in this man that is before them riding on this donkey. So there's Jesus riding on his colt, entering the city, surrounded by thousands of people shouting for him. This doesn't happen every day. This is a unique set of circumstances. Many of them not even understanding why they're shouting, especially this young child next to Uncle John and Aunt Mary. Why are they shouting? Why is there so many people here? Maybe he receives the answer. Hopefully you have. But there's another question that maybe you're asking this morning. What does Hosanna mean? Why are they shouting Hosanna? It says that they're shouting. They're literally fulfilling Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. They're shouting. They're shouting aloud. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting Hosanna for my study which is limited, but from my study, I understand that this word is actually a transliteration of an Aramaic expression, which means, help me, help I pray, or save me, I'm asking, I'm, 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 I'm calling out, salvation, save me, help me. It's a call for help, effectively. And it's, right, it's given to the one or to someone who can actually help you, someone who can actually save you. And so this is a, a, a one-word prayer that the people of God would pray to God. Save me. Help me. Come swiftly. But really, here it's more than that. Over, over time, from what I understand, this prayer had sort of morphed into a, a cry, really not of prayer, but a, a cry of praise. A, cry, a, 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 a prayer of praise that would demonstrate faith and dependence and, and hope in this future act in this future fulfillment they cry out hosanna it means to save me but it in this sense they are saying salvation is here salvation has come one of the believed signs of the the coming of the messiah and his kingdom was that healing of the sick would take place listen to the language of isaiah chapter 35 we read it this morning Listen to this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see, this is going to be important in a moment, they shall see the glory of the Lord. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All of this is describing the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And had they not just witnessed so much of this, trace back through our study of the Gospel of Mark, even just as recent as last week, the eyes of the blind were open with our friend Blind Bartimaeus. Isaiah 35, verse 5. They'd just seen a fulfillment of that. Like, literally, there's this great crowd, and Jericho's not that far. They've been together for a while. They've had a few miles to talk about. Wow! Maybe some of the more educated, the more, more familiar with Isaiah 35 are saying, I'm pretty sure that blind Bartimaeus is a fulfillment. What just happened to him is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35. And things maybe start to click and connect, and they're like, wow, that song we just sang. Wow, that's happening. Wow, Zechariah 9. Let's, we're doing that right now. So it's just becoming even louder. They're reminding themselves, of, wait, 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 wait. Jesus, the guy that just healed blind Bartimaeus, he's also the guy that healed that, that other dude that was, was lame, that couldn't walk, and he raised several people from the dead. Do you remember Lazarus? That's the same guy. That's him. News is spreading through this crowd of pilgrims. Is it possible? Is this the one? I, I, I saw him heal, heal a lame man. I, I saw him heal a paralytic. And they're all calling out and saying, this is the fulfillment. This is it. The sad part is they're, they're calling out in, in need of physical salvation while the very lamb that would take away the sins of the world was right in their midst. And he was coming to provide spiritual salvation. Right there. That's a sign of their faith in Jesus being this Messiah and Jesus being their salvation. They quote Psalm 118, verse 26. If you're taking notes, write that down. That'd be a great one for you to tie together at another point in time, maybe this week, maybe during your life group. But they quote Psalm 118, verse 26. It says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Really, they're praying a blessing over, over Jesus to God. And they're, they're saying, hey, uh, may God bless the one who comes in the name of God. On behalf of God. And they think that Jesus will need the blessing because really, in their view, he has come to not rescue them and provide salvation in a spiritual way, but in their minds, he's come to provide rescue in a physical way. So he'll need all the blessing and prayers he can get if he's going to take on Rome, right? Uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that has worked out poorly in the past, right? For the Jews as they tried to receive forget, or, or freedom rather from those who oppressed them. I'm speaking of the Maccabean uh, Revolution. And so it's gone poorly in the past, and they're praying this blessing found in Isaiah, uh, Psalm 118, verse 26. They're praying that over Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, our, uh, who comes in, uh, in the, uh, blessed is the coming kingdom, rather, of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So you say, well, what, what does Hosanna mean? Uncle John, Aunt Mary, what, what, why are they calling out Hosanna? Because they believe that Jesus is there to save them. They believe that Jesus is there to save them. 
But you've got another question, don't you? If you're like me, you're saying, well, what? I get all that. I understand a little bit more about the cult. I understand a little bit more about the cloaks. And I understand that why there's a crowd there at this point in time that's kind of fleshed out and painted a little more clearer for me this morning. I understand now what Hosanna means. And I'm still a little confused as to the fact that they're confused. But yeah, it's coming more clear. But I still want to know this. What does Jesus have to do with King David? And this is such a good point. Uh, even this sermon, I hope for you, is, is reaching a, a, a climax and becoming even more uh, fever pitch, if you will. I, I, alerted, I alluded earlier to the first king of Israel, which was Saul. Now, he didn't last very long as the king uh, before he was un, uh, displaced. Really, uh, toward the end of his career as king, uh, Saul's career as king, uh, another one was anointed in his place. That was David. David, in contrast to Saul, was a good king. Matter of fact, that's an understatement. He was a great king. And to that great king, the Bible says he was uh, right after God's own heart. To that king, God promised a promise that uh, really flew in the face of all other kingdoms. It flew in the face of the previous kingdom, the previous dynasty uh, associated with Saul. This is the promise that David's son would always reign. One of David's sons would always reign. And God makes that very clear in uh, Psalm, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is what we see it's recorded as the Davidic covenant. This is what God promises. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. One of the interesting things about this passage and about this particular covenant is that the throne of David's son will be established forever. And you might think, well, that's, that's a neat thing to say. It's very poetic. It sounds great. But that just doesn't happen. We saw it. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's clearly evident with Saul. Saul, the first king of Israel, dies in a field alongside of his heir, alongside of his son. Eventually, Saul's whole family is wiped out, save one man. David honors him later. But at the same time, that man, Mephibosheth, never sits on the throne and these two stand in contrast one with the other. Well, you, you, you can even branch out of the, the history of the Jews and realize that that doesn't happen. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Dynasties come and dynasties go. But God is promising to David that that will not happen to him. He's not just saying, hey, it's going to be a long time that your seed, that your son will reign on the throne. He's saying, for ever and it's more than just a physical kingdom that that god is speaking to uh, speaking about here when he references this to david but i want you to hold that in mind for now just see this that jesus is actually the son of david jesus is a descendant of david and that may be so obvious to many of us, but it's vitally important. And the, the New Testament wants us to see that. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it starts this way. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes on to actually demonstrate for us, to record there for us, how Jesus actually is the son of David. But what's interesting here is that Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says he's not only the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham. And that's important because the promise that God gave to King David also applies to Jesus. And the promise that God gave to Abraham is also fulfilled and applies to Jesus as well. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this is what the Word of God says. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, listen, and in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Are you following this? Jesus is the son of David, which means he will reign in his kingdom forever. When he comes to the throne, he'll reign forever. But he's also the son of Abraham, the son that was prophesied that would bless all the families of the earth. What greater blessings have the descendants of Abraham given to all the families than Christ the Messiah? It's fulfilled here. And that's no small feat or that's no small promise. It echoes down from the promise there in the garden that there at the entry point of, of sin entering into the world through Adam. All the pain that we experience in this life, it's caused by sin. And God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that he would stamp out our enemy and that he would stamp out the sin that destroys us the sin that we give into. Do you see how these all three line up for us? Jesus, the son of Adam, will crush the head of Satan. Jesus, the son of Abraham, would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Jesus, the son of David, would bring salvation as he ascends his throne and he would reign forever. He would come to save. And so you say, Uncle John, Aunt Mary, why? What does Jesus, what does this man have to do with King David? Well, he's come to save. He's come as the king. He'll rule forever. Let's keep going. Verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so maybe you're asking here, hey, it kind of seems like, you know, there was, there was this like mounting, building to something, and then like at the end of your passage this morning, Pastor Josh, like Jesus just walks in like super exciting, everybody's shouting, and then it's like Jesus walks into the temple, it's quiet, you know, and then he just goes home. It's kind of anticlimactic. Maybe you're thinking that this morning, and maybe you're even asking, uh, why does Jesus not go to uh, the market where the people might have been? Why does he not go to the Antonio Fortress where, where all the Roman uh, soldiers were, were gathered? Why doesn't he start there? Why doesn't he go to the house of Pilate? Uh, why doesn't he go to the actual historic throne of David, to the, to the house of David there on the south side of the city? And Why does it just 
fall off here? Why do we get to the end and Jesus just walks into a, a quiet temple with nobody in there, looks around, and goes home? It's interesting. Mark is subtle, and yet he's clear as he weaves together a tapestry of history and prophecy and even poetry, and he does this in a divine manner. And this isn't an add-on. Jesus doesn't just walk in. Oh, yeah, and he walked into the temple at the very end. This is actually the focus of this passage. And so if you're struggling to stay with me, eh, double down. We're getting somewhere. Jesus, the Lord, has suddenly come into his temple. That's the point of all this. That's what all this is building to up into this point. Malachi chapter 3 says this. You'll remember this from the very first time that we looked at John. From the very beginning, Malachi chapter 3, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, Yahweh, whom you seek, suddenly will come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi chapter 3 tells us that there will be a, 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 a forerunner. There'll be a messenger coming before the Lord. We remember that. That's John the Baptist. Back when we began our, our study in, in Mark's gospel, he came first. He was preparing the way of the Lord. And now the Lord suddenly has come into his temple. And so when we read that with our 21st century eyes, we're like, oh, he just looked around and then went home and when a Jew in the first century reads this, they say the Lord has suddenly come into his temple. Mark is wanting us to see that Jesus is the final and ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies. You still may ask, but I want to understand, why does Jesus come into the temple? I want to give you three reasons this morning as we get ready to close. The first is this. He comes for divine inspection. He comes for divine inspection. This isn't any undercover boss situation. Jesus, the Lord of hosts, is coming suddenly into his temple and he's making a spot check. We'll learn more about that next week. He's coming for a divine inspection. Furthermore, he's coming for a final sacrifice. And then lastly, he's, he's coming because it's all about returned glory. I'll spend a few moments on each one of these. We'll move quickly. Three reasons why Jesus comes into the temple here in verse 11. Number one, divine inspection. He is the Lord of the temple. Suddenly, as Malachi 3 says, he's coming into his temple. Jesus is inspecting its premises, and he is working to determine whether the, the purpose God intended that temple to be was actually being fulfilled by the priests and by the people provides a little bit of a survey there on the grounds some way of figurative action here because next the next day he's going to come back and what is he going to do he's going to cleanse the temple a little bit of a heads up jesus said my house is supposed to be a house of what of prayer it's supposed to be a house of desperation. It's supposed to be a place where the, the nations can come and receive salvation. And yet what you've done is, as you, your own guests and as the nations come, you've made this a way to rob from them. Jesus comes back to provide an inspection. And he'll give the verdict on the following day. But that's one reason why. He's providing an inspection. 
an additional reason why. Why is Jesus coming into his temple? Because he is the final sacrifice. He has come to make the final sacrifice. He has gathered the lamb. A lamb has been provided, and he is now making that pilgrim trek up to the city of Jerusalem where that lamb will be sacrificed. And who is that lamb? It is Christ himself. He is the Passover lamb. He's the final sacrifice. I don't know this from my own uh, just knowledge, but from my study, I, I've read this, that this particular day is the 10th of Nisan. And that's not some kind of a savings on a car deal here, right? This is the 10th, of, this is the month in the Jewish calendar on the 10th day of that month. And on that particular day, that's the day where the lamb that you selected, the Passover lamb will be brought and presented before sacrifice. You see, the lamb that was going to be sacrificed at the Passover would have to be spotless. It would have to be healthy. It would have to be in good order. It couldn't be one of these lemon lambs that you brought to make a sacrifice, and it's like, hey, it looks great, but the next day it's dead, or the next day all its hair falls out, or, you know, whatever. So they had to see that this lamb was actually going to, to pass the test. And Jesus here on this day is before God the Father. He is presenting himself as the spotless lamb that is without sin the spotless lamb that will die and whose blood will atone for the sins of many he's there to present himself for the final sacrifice and you better know we're going to look at this over the course of the next few weeks and even the next few months we're going to see that jesus will in fact be tested he will be proved to see that he is indeed the spotless lamb capable of taking away the sins of the world. And so he's there for a divine inspection. He is there for a final sacrifice. Church, listen to this. He is there for returned glory. Don't miss this. He is there for returned glory. I say don't miss it. I almost did. Had I not read another pastor theologian, his words on this, this has been helpful. The return of God's glory. I was brought to my attention that in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, in the year 586, he, he, he sees this vision and he writes it down. And what, what's happening in this vision is that this is the, the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's the people of God being forced into exile there in Babylon. And, and Ezekiel writes this down that God gives him a vision. And, he, and in that vision, he is observing Jerusalem. Jerusalem there before him, to his right, the, the Kidron Valley. And as the valley goes down, it comes back up and crests to about 300 feet above the, the elevation of Jerusalem there. That is the Mount of Olives. And Ezekiel, with his eyes in this vision, he sees the, the glory of God exit the temple. And the glory of God crosses the Kidron Valley and it goes up to the Mount of Olives toward Bethany and Bethphage. Literally, he sees the glory of God leaving his temple. Talk about a climax. Of all the wicked kings, of all the broken covenants, of all the broken laws, of all the wicked hearts, all culminated in that moment with the judgment of God and his people getting sent off into exile and the glory of God that dwelt there in the temple departing. Perhaps one of the saddest verses you can read in the Old Testament, especially for a first century Jew. What's beautiful is that the Bible says that the word 
became flesh. And he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And the word, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. That's Jesus. That's a prophecy of Jesus. It's a fulfillment of Jesus. That Everything the tabernacle pointed to, everything the temple pointed to, as we learned about this morning in the equipping hour, which, by the way, if you're looking for fireworks, you missed them this morning, 9.15. Looking at how Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, that Jesus is the fulfillment of of even Eden. What a beautiful picture here. Jesus even says, destroy this temple, right? What does he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it, raise it back up in John chapter 2. He's speaking of himself. So the beautiful part here is that in 586 B.C., Ezekiel sees the glory of God leaving the temple, the holy city, crossing the Kidron Valley, going up to the Mount of Olives, finally exiting Jerusalem. And at the trial for entry, if we're paying attention, the one whom the scriptures define as the brightness of God's glory, the one who's not made in the image of God, but the one, as Colossians says, who is the image of God, he crosses from the Mount of Olives. He crosses down the Kidron Valley, and he enters the gate there, the eastern gate. And what does he do? He goes up into the temple, and we as 21st century readers, we look at that and we say, what does that even mean? We tug on the shoulders of Uncle John and Aunt Mary, and we say, what does that mean? The glory of God had departed, and now the glory of God had returned. It's likely that Uncle John and Aunt Mary maybe didn't even catch that. Mark's recorded for us here. Why does Jesus enter his temple? Brothers and sisters, let's not miss that. He, Jesus, the great I am, veiled in flesh, was returning to the temple in all of his glory. Do you see that? Jesus has come as a descendant of David. He's come to fulfill God's promises in the Old Testament of a future king who would establish the kingdom of God on earth. So Uncle John and Aunt Mary, you look up and you ask them, you say, what does this mean? And perhaps with tears in his eyes, Uncle John looks down at you and he says, he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to invite you just into a time of reflection. There's been very little, if any, application that I've drawn out of this text this morning. But I just want to raise up before you this idea that Jesus keeps his promises, that Jesus is God. And the things that he, that were foretold of him, have been fulfilled in him. I want you to think about that. I'm going to use that word, that Aramaic word, Hosanna. I want you to think about that word this morning. See, each and every one of us are in need of salvation. Each and every one of us. Some of us realize it, some of us don't. 
Some of us have forgotten it and need to be remembered. If you can agree with me on that point, that we all need salvation, we all need a Savior, we all need a King, I want you to answer this question. Which way are you using that title, that that term, Hosanna? Are you, this morning, using that as a prayer? God, save me. Somebody save me. Somebody help me. Or instead, are you using that as a praise God, I have been saved. This morning, are you saying salvation? Or are you saying salvation? Are you crying out as one in need? Or are you crying out as one rejoicing? Hagerstown Church, my prayer for you this morning is that if you are in that first group and you're saying, I need salvation, this morning the Lord has revealed to me my own sin. Uh, I've sensed through my own life just the helplessness that I have. And I've seen the glory of Christ as he comes into his own temple this morning. If that's you this morning, I would invite you to cry out with that need in your heart that you need salvation. And so cry out this morning, Hosanna. Church, maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, no, I've been saved. I've received salvation. So my invitation for you this morning, my really only point of application is that we as a church would rise up and that we would declare and testify of the salvation that we have received and that we would rejoice because our King, our Savior, King David, reigning on his throne will will be there forever. And he keeps his promises that we would leave this place celebrating that truth that because he's kept these other promises he'll keep the other ones because he the promise to come and to save as he did because that came true we also can believe that he will come and deliver us from our present sins and temptation sin that so easily besets us because Christ has come we can believe we can have hope that he kept that promise he'll keep the promise to redeem us Maybe you say, where is, uh, where is his coming? He came the first time. Where is the second? Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm losing hope. He keeps his promises, church. And maybe you're saying this morning, I'm not convinced that he's working in my situation. I'm not concerned that he's working in my pain. I'm not, cons- I'm not convinced that he's working in, in, in my situation. Maybe as you see the promises that Uncle John our friend Mark have reminded us this morning that you'd say, no, no, no. He does keep his promises and sometimes he tarries. But his time is not our time. His ways are not our ways. Would you believe, would you celebrate this morning? Hosanna. Hosanna. Hagerstown Church, he keeps his promises. I want, you to, I want to just invite you to think about that. Take the next few moments to either call out to God for salvation celebrate that he has given it to you. Father, we're reminded about the fact that after Jesus' resurrection, he met those men on the road to Emmaus, those disciples and began to chat about the current events. And when they realized that the man that they were walking with was the 
resurrected Jesus, the incarnate Christ, that he opened up the scriptures and that he demonstrated how that all of scripture points to Christ and that he is the fulfillment. And so we've, we've looked at the glory of the promise in Genesis 3, in Genesis 12, in 2 Samuel 7. Father, we've celebrated as we've seen that fulfillment in your son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, the eternal son of David. Father, we make much of you this morning. We celebrate that gift that you have given to us. Pray that you would call those to themselves, to yourself, and that those who are calling out in need of salvation, that you would hear. And we know that you will. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen.